So my name is Francesca Tripodi. Um, I'm an assistant professor. Do you want me to sit or should I stand? Whatever you I'm going to stand. That's fine. I'm a, an assistant professor in the School of Information and Library Science at UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm a senior researcher at the Center for Information Technology and Public Life. And um, yeah, I study mis and disinformation, but I also look at socio-technical vulnerabilities more broadly. So I'm interested in how um, people and individuals put platforms to use in ways that programmers might not anticipate or intend. So I'm a sociologist by trade, but um, I study Wikipedia and I studied Yik Yak, which is like a now defunct website, and I study search. Um, so here is where I'm at. I'm going to start with a quick, just quick poll. Uh, does anyone here know Nellie Orr? Okay. You know who Nellie Orr is? All right. Okay. All right. So you're the only person. All right. So Nellie Orr. So I know how most of you voted in this room in the 2020 election. Um, and I'll come back to who she is later in this talk. All right. So I recently wrote a book um, that I'm going to talk about today uh, that thinks about how powerful politicians, I am going to sit down actually, how powerful politicians wield the power of search engines. And the way that they do this is to um, steer public attention away from concepts that might hurt their campaigns while uh, simultaneously creating ulterior uh, narratives. So the two questions that I want us to get at today is how have lies glossed over historical realities within the United States more broadly? So what I think a lot about is that much of the um, central narratives that I pick up on in my research are actually legacies of a fractured past within the United States. And to what extent is this connected to the way that we search for information online? So a little bit about um, how I conducted my research for this book. Um, I am a qualitative researcher by default, but I also combine it with quantitative work as well. <clears throat> so most of this work was done ethnographically. I was inside two Republican organizations, a women's Republican group and a college Republicans group. And I spent a lot of time going to their monthly meetings, um, tabling on their campus. Um, we went door knocking for various political candidates. I went to their Bible studies with them. I went to backyard barbecues and um, other kinds of fundraisers. I was also a citizen of Charlottesville during the 2017. So I also, in addition to my ethnographic work inside these communities, attended three white supremacist rallies that took place in the city of Charlottesville um, in the summer leading up to uh, the governor's election. And all this research is centered around the governor election taking place in the state of Virginia at that time. I then uh, conducted in-depth interviews and focus groups with 30 participants. So these were members of either the college group or the women's group and people who participated. Hi, welcome. Um, there's food in there too. You should get some food. Um, range in age from like 18 to 70. <clears throat> I also conducted virtual ethnography. So I don't have a personal Facebook, but I set up a Facebook account for this project explicitly. And then as part of the informed consent process, persons that I interviewed, I, they allowed me to connect with them on Facebook. And so then I was able to track the news and information that they liked, shared, or commented on. Um, and then I was also able to see how Facebook would advertise to me as a presumed conservative um, in their eyes. Finally, I went through a process of media immersion. So this is a new <laughs> methodological technique that I am going to write about, but it's effectively ethnography extended. So not only did I embed myself within these various groups, I also asked them what was news and information that they would turn to and trust. And then for four months, I, ex I um, consumed all of my news and information from that source, at those sources, and I refrained from any traditional form of news that I would normally rely on. <clears throat> and this was really, I think, a very important part of my project by immersing myself in these um, 
narratives, I was able to very much identify like what are the common themes that are coming up because I was not familiar at all with any of these sources that they were telling me that they relied on. I'm a grounded theorist, which is going to be very easy for most of you in this room to understand, but I basically triangulated my ethnography, my interviews, my media immersion, and then I did a really focused content analysis of the media that I listened to afterwards, and then I relied on grounded theory to um, form the various uh, things that I was talking about. <clears throat> so the propagandist playbook ultimately comes down to a seven-step process. Um, Step one is knowing your audience. And I'll, I'll kind of briefly touch through all of these, but then I'm going to go in depth in, into some of them. Um, so step one is knowing your audience. Uh, in this chapter, I talk about what does conservatism mean and why is conservatism different than being a Republican. And I uh, talk about the core concerns and beliefs that um, round out conservative ideology according to those who I'm studying. Step two is bridging together social media platforms and legacy media to leverage an interconnected network. So I build off of um, the network's propaganda, right-wing information, right-wing media ecosystem to talk a little bit more about um, information systems and how those flow. <clears throat> Step three is getting into um, various forms of media literacy. So. I explain how conservatives in my study uh, engage with media similar to that of the Bible, and they engage in a uh, literal iterancy that inerrancy that allowed them to um, directly uh, engage with texts that were deemed sacred. So it's a reading practice taught in Bible study, but not exclusive to the Bible. And I show this through various examples, and happy to get more into that if any of you are of interest interested in that. And then <clears throat> four through seven is, is what, really what I'm going to focus on in my talk today. Um, so I'm not going to get into them one by one. Instead, we'll just talk. And then anything else you all want to get into, we can get into in the Q&A. All right. So search has become an ubiquitous part of everyday life. Um, not only do we rely on something like Google. Googling is like now synonymous just for looking up anything. Uh, but how and the ways that we search is also shifting. Um, and it was clear in my research that Google, and this now, when I was doing my research in 2017, I would argue this is shifting, and my new research talks about how this is shifting. But in my book, I talk explicitly about the important role Google plays in informing voters before they head to the polls. So as part of this primary in the 2017 governor's race in Virginia, I traveled to various polling places before the election started. So this was in the, during the primary races. <clears throat> and I would ask people as they were exiting the polls, how did you find out who you wanted to vote for? And everyone's like, oh, well, I just vote along party lines. I was like, sure, but this is the primary. So <laughs> how did you figure out like, who you wanted to vote for? Um, and they're like, well, you know, I just went to Google. I just Googled it. And I would ask, like, well, what do you mean you Googled it? And they're like, uh, put the name into Google. And then I press enter. One old lady was like very worried that I didn't know what Google was. <laughs> she was like, well, dear, you type these names into a search engine press enter, you know, the stuff returns. And I was like, but then what? Like, then what? What do you do? And this question just didn't resonate. And I realized it didn't resonate because so much of us don't really think about that question, then what? Um, but Google was just dominated uh, the way that people find out information when it comes to politics. This is one of my favorite quotes from my ethnographic work. Um, when I was asking them, how do you find news that you can trust? Uh, and this woman, who also is a journalist um, for a local television um, station, said, I literally type it into Google. And I read the first three to five articles that pop up, because those are the ones that are obviously the most clicked and the most read. And this came up in every interview that I had, um, that the top search results equaled more important, more relevant, or in some cases, more accurate 
forms of information. And other studies have demonstrated this, right, that the, the SCMC um, really makes a big deal. <coughs> now, if you're looking up what in information science we refer to as like static searches, this doesn't matter. Like, great, head to Google. Rely on that knowledge paint, right? If, if you're from the United States and say like traveling to Europe and just are super rusty on your metric conversions and you need to know how many meters are in a mile, like Google's great for that. Um, it also doesn't matter, right, which search engine you use because this is information that's gonna be the same no matter what you put into it. Um, but what I argue is that these searches become problematic when they collide with what Arlie Hochschild refers to as deep stories. So <coughs> Arlie Hochschild is a sociologist that talks about this notion of deep stories. And deep stories are those narratives that have been told and retold so many times that you actually don't need to hear the whole story to know the moral of the story. In the words of Arlie Hochschild, these are stories that feel true even if they aren't accurate. And what I argue is that in the United States, um, or not, I, I did research inside the United States, but this is not exclusive to the United States, um, these deep stories are easily activated, right? And they also collide with what I refer to as ideological dialects, right? So, for example, going back, if you think about something like the American dream, that is a very deep story, but the words that you use to describe the American dream also collide with your worldview and the way that you were brought up and your sociological education. So, for example, if you're using phrases like picking oneself up by their bootstraps as a way of signaling the American dream, you're coming at it from a different ideological perspective than someone who might consider the American dream as one that bridges together multicultural perspectives and um, enjoys and engages in these other forms of of knowledge making. <clears throat> so um, through my research, I came to understand the important role ideolo ideological dialects play in shaping people's understanding of the world around them. And I became acutely aware that these, these ideological dialects uh, are able to quickly activate deep stories, and then they map on to the internet. OK, so that's all great in theory. What does that look like in practice? Um, let's go, right? So, <clears throat> stop this deal. Um, an ideological dialect that quickly gained traction in 2022 was the catchphrase, stop the steal, um, meant to embody the lie that the 2020 election had been stolen. So on January 6th, 2021, um, the then president of the United States had gathered thousands of his supporters under the auspices of a stolen election using this catchphrase, stop the steal. Just before they stormed the Capitol, um, he addressed the audience in an hour-long speech um, filled with unsubstantiated claims of fraud. Right? So I don't have time to talk about all the lies that were discussed that day, but among them include that dead people had voted, that non-citizens, felons, and people who had moved had voted. At one point during the speech, Trump asserted that the presidential election of 2020 was the most corrupt election in the history, maybe, of the world. Before encouraging those there to march down Pennsylvania Avenue and take their country back. During the speech on multiple occasions, he credited his supporters for inventing the phrase, stop this deal. Um, but this was hardly a creation of machination. And we can tell this by going to Google Trends. So many of you in this room already know what this means, but um, Google Trends basically is a sample of the billions of queries that the search engine handles on any given day. Um, and then the, the results can be reviewed um, and compared to each other. So each data point is divided by the total number of searches over time um, based on the geographic location. So zero on this scatter, on this uh, chart, represents like minimal or perhaps even no search interest. 
100 represents like the maximum search interest at that point of time compared to other searches. So what you're seeing here in this graph is the interest over time of Stop the Steal entered into a search engine. <clears throat> and what you can see is that Stop the Steal um, started back in 2016, right? When Trump thought he might lose the election to Hillary Clinton. So you see a small spike in it and then it fades after he wins and it goes away and we don't see it again until the 2018 primaries, like a month before the primaries. And then it peaks in November of 2018, which is when the primaries are happening. And then nothing really big happens in those primaries. It goes away again. And then you see it spike to the maximum interest in the 2020 election. It fades ever so slightly, a dip. And then that last um, spike are the days leading up to the January 6th insurrection of the Capitol. <clears throat> I went back to 2016 archival data um, so that I could analyze some of the posts surrounding the Stop the Steal hashtag. Um, a lot of, some of them centered on anti-Semitism, right? So you had George Soros in 2016 was paying to um, win the election. Then you had uh, more um, other explicit forms of racism, right? phrases like illegal aliens were voting in this election and that's why um, you had insinuations toward uh, ballot security. So what became the Dominion voting um, scandals you were seeing here. <clears throat> but my favorite one is the one right in the middle, um, the advertisement for Trump ballot security and that keyword, we'll, you'll hear it again, with the email stopthesteal at gmail.com. Now I've emailed this, <laughs> I've emailed them so many times because I'm like, what do you offer? What is the security, you know? And no one's ever responded to me. Um, so if you ever get a response from this email address, you have to let me know because I'm dying to know who's there. <clears throat> I know. I, you know. I haven't actually ever called. Maybe that's what I should do. Yes. Why didn't I call? What have I called? Yeah. Hello. Okay. So, <clears throat> the archival data of Twitter tells the deep story of stolen elections, and it goes a little something like this: Others whether that be Jewish people or immigrants, black people or other racial or religious minorities, um, women, LGBTQ people, right? They are all trying to commit election fraud. They are trying to steal influence from those who should hold power in society. But what my research demonstrates in my book is that this is actually a pretty tired recycled narrative dating back to the 1800s. So I draw from the work of W.E.B. Du Bois, who is a sociologist and wrote in 1935, Black Reconstruction in America. And he talks about the role that um, misinformation, and he actually uses that word, misinformation, on page, hold on, I always like to give people, page 714. I think it's really important to recognize, right? So he talks about how educational texts had been weaponized as a form of misinformation in order to um, subjugate black men in the United States, black women as well, um, and claim that they were subhuman. So what the history text did was claim that Reconstruction failed in the United States, not because of systemic racism, but because of the inferior intelligence of black persons. This is what W.E. Du Bois shows by doing a textual analysis of these history books written by businessmen, not, not written by like people with any sort of idea. <clears throat> so as he explains, um, truth was often neglected as a form of absolving guilt. And back in the 1980s, um, when the Reconstruction Act allowed a record number of black men to serve in US Congress, you see these first 
circulations of election fraud, right? That black men, that they, they had somehow abused their voting privileges or engaged in corruption or stood generally unfit for democracy. So this notion of a stolen election is by no means a new idea. It's meant stop the steal as a new key word. It's meant to signify that existing deep story. This deep story of a stolen election resurfaced again in the 1980s when the National Ballot Security Task Force was formed um, as part of the Republican National Committee. So they created the National Ballot Security Task Force, which was um, essentially volunteer police officers that would patrol off-duty in traditionally black and Hispanic neighborhoods and would often come armed to bowling stations in order to suppress the vote. <clears throat> so the, stolen, the idea of a stolen election intersects with the story of a zero-sum game. Right? The idea that positions some people's gains as a necessary loss for others. And so even though um, these aren't true, right? <laughs> even though these are in fact lies, by activating these stories that people know very well, um, Stop the Steal becomes a really quick stand-in. So what I show in my research is that understanding our deep stories um, is extremely important because it dictates the way that people um, conduct searches. And it's part of this disinformation loop. Okay, so I'm going to take a break from politics. Also, I need a little bit more water. Do we have? Thanks, Justin. <clears throat> okay, so I love this example because it's very lighthearted. So in the United States, I grew up learning that the color of the sky, oh, awesome, is blue. Um, did anyone else learn something different? <laughs> I'm just wondering. No? All right, so thank you so much. That's awesome. So. <clears throat> Okay, great. Oh, this is so frustrating. All right, so something as simple as the color of the sky. Um, as a sociologist, I'm always, we're always are talking about like social construction, and that doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that it was created by um, our interactions with other people. Um, and through content analysis of the Hebrew Bible and Homer's Iliad, researchers have shown that the color of the sky was not always this blue color or how we perceive of the sky as blue is predicated on the production of blue as a synthetic color because blue does not actually exist in nature in most places. The prevalence of blue that we see um, is dependent on this like highly mechanic mechanized um, production of like synthetic color. And after uh, blue sort of floods the market we see this um, shift in being like, oh, it's as blue as the color of the sky, or seeing blue as the color of the sky. All right, so Google. And I pick on Google, but it can be any search. It could be ChatGPT. Tell me a story about the color of the sky. I guarantee you it's going to tell you it's blue. But <clears throat> the color of the sky is blue. You get some beautiful images of a blue sky. This knowledge graph tells us why the sky is blue, right? Um, you got some good sources. NASA, McGill, I mean, I believe you, right? Sky is blue. But the sky is not blue. First of all, I don't know who this band is. Does anyone know Lemon Demon? Is that it? Yes, <laughs> Neil Sikorega. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the sky is not blue. I don't know, I have to listen to the song. But, so, if you kind of, push that one aside, you get people always ask, what is the true color of the sky? Why the sky is not blue? The sky isn't really blue. Um, you know, the fandom site for this band that I don't know. Uh, but what's fascinating is, if you search either of those sources, you actually get the same information, which is that this color of the sky is dependent on levels of pollution in the air, that like our refractals, like the way our eyes see things, it, the color of the sky is actually more violet than blue, but 
we as human beings see it as blue more than violet, right? But you can quickly do a search to confirm kind of any reality you want it to be. Um, so the power of inputs, this is a huge part of my book, is that our ideological dialects, this is a very like, well, who cares about the color of the sky? But, um, if you're trying to win an argument or trying to demonstrate who's right, a quick search can easily uh, lead you down a path of unsubstantiated claims. And I'll show you how this works. So <clears throat> how do ideological dialects shape keywords? Much like the color of the sky, our deep stories can shape how we see something like democratic participation. So I hope you can see this. But I basically used two different um, ways of thinking about uh, the role that non-citizens play in voting and whether or not they should, right? So non-citizen voting rights versus illegal alien voter fraud. Um, these changes, these might have changed a bit in the last few days. Let me know if you're seeing different stuff. Um, but by and large, um, I, the non-citizen voting rights, right, this is a way of seeing the world that thinks that, well, why shouldn't? someone who's not a citizen vote, they're paying taxes, um, they should have a voice in, in the democratic process. Um, illegal alien voting fraud is coming at it thinking, well, these are people who are coming in and they are stealing the elections from us, right? This is the stop the steal kind of narrative. <clears throat> and what I argue in my research is that while everyday people might not really understand the mechanics of search, and how queries could like vastly change the returns, uh, propagandists and theorists and political pundits have a very good understanding of how this works, and they are using it to their advantage. <clears throat> so um, words that work, does anyone know the title of the book, Words That Work? Does anyone know who wrote this book? Okay, Frank Luntz wrote this book, Words That Work. And well before the internet was a thing, um, Frank Lutz, and this, I mean, I would say he was the later of them, uh, you know, John, John Rendon, uh, for quite some time, conservative strategists understood the power of words and language. Right? And they would create key words and phrases, and they would distribute them on paper <laughs> to um, people running for office, and they'd say, listen, this is our drumbeat. Say these same words. And so the phrase climate change, many people don't know this, but was created by Frank Lutz. Right? So when, in, in the um, 1990s, late 80s and 90s, when they were trying to take control of the house, um, everyone was talking about global warming. And Frank Lutz was like, well, we don't really have a policy on global warming. And quite frankly, it doesn't really make us look good. So when you hear this, when people ask you about global warming, you respond with climate change. I've done a lot of focus groups. Climate change doesn't sound as scary. Climate change makes it seem like the science is still out. So if anyone asks you about global warming, change the direction. And what I demonstrate is this exact same strategy of gradually nudging the debate in a different direction works really, really well online. <laughs> so I call these concepts, um, these tactics of matching information systems around relevance or like keyword curation and strategic signaling. So these are words or phrases that are created to match ideological dialects and trick search engine heuristics. So you don't need to know how to program to make sure that your stuff floats to the top of a search engine query. And I can talk a little bit more about that in Q&A if my voice holds up. Okay. So <clears throat> I talk about how these tactics are dependent on this concept of data voids. So data voids were created by two researchers at Microsoft to talk about when little to nothing exists online, it's really easy to push out a bunch of stuff about this subject and then dominate search returns. So a person who was extremely good at this was Alex Jones. 
um, the concept crisis actor. <clears throat> so crisis actors are actually a real thing, right? So FEMA hires people to act out a crisis to train emergency response persons, right? This is a, a kernel of truth wrapped in a bunch of garbage. So he took this phrase that's linked to something real, but had pretty much nothing about it online. And then he created a whole lie around it. And then he used the names of parents who lost children, right? And then he used their names because nothing existed about these people. And their names became synonymous with this deep story that the Sandy Hook massacre was a hoax, okay? <clears throat> so this is how Alex Jones was able to get his audience to believe um, those kinds of lies. So now let's go back to that straw poll from the beginning. So who is Nellie Orr? Okay. So Nellie Orr, this is, <laughs> this is a Q conspiracy that worked its way all the way up. Uh, actually, um, I, have a art, I have a piece on this in Wired, but Devin Nunez, during the first Trump impeachment, Devin Nunez used his opening remarks to say that we should not be paying attention to the indiscretions of this call with President Zelensky, and that what we should be paying attention to is Nellie Orr and Fusion GPS. For those who are not familiar, Nellie Orr is the wife of Bruce Orr, who was a person in the Department of Justice who was there while Trump's impeachment was happening. She worked at Fusion GPS. Fusion GPS hired Christopher Steele, the dossier wasn't well done, and so this is definitive proof that the impeachment is actually a witch hunt and that Trump had done nothing wrong. <clears throat> and even still, on YouTube, um, if you type in who is Nellie Orr, uh, it further propagates this idea, right? So by signaling to these concepts and phrases, um, it can dominate search returns so that someone inquisitive that's like, oh, why should we be paying attention to Nellie Orr? Who is that, right? Only gets one side of the story because there's actually no story. There, there is no other side because it's like a manufactured concern that isn't real. <clears throat> these are the same tactics that they used um, in order to uh, get Google to autocomplete Stop the with Steel. So, so much attention was going towards Stop the Steel um, that Stop the autocompleted Steel and then directed you to the closest um, rally happening in your geographic location. So, by knowing and understanding the concerns of their audiences, search engines can become these easily gameable systems. By creating a successful drumbeat, it impacts information systems um, and not only gets people to think a certain way around a topic or idea, but it's also used to deflect blame after the fact. So I demonstrate in my book, after the violence that ensued on January 6th, um, these same tactics were used to claim that it was Antifa responsible for the violence. <clears throat> so here's a map of the um, in network propaganda, uh, this side on the, this red side is what Benkler, Ferris, and Roberts refer to as the right wing media e ecosystem. Uh, right wing, yeah, right wing media ecosystem. Thank you. <clears throat> um, so I can kind of show you how this played out um, in the minutes and hours following the storming of the, of the Capitol. So right after, as the, the Capitol is stormed, um, Candace Owens, who is a very central figure within this landscape, tweets, my hope is that all violent agitators are arrested and that their names are revealed publicly. Call it a hunch, 
but my guess is there are still Antifa thugs in the mix. Todd Herman, who um, was the guest for the, the Rush Limbaugh show that evening, um, started the podcast that night claiming that he had been monitoring Antifa chat channels and knew firsthand that Antifa had embedded themselves among the protesters and were the ones causing problems. On One American News Network that night, they described the chaos as Antifa-like tactics. That afternoon, the Washington Examiner published a story claiming that facial recognition software had identified extremists. Now, they've since corrected this article because that facial recognition software did identify the extremists. They were not Antifa, but in the original article, they claimed that they were part of Antifa. Paul Gosser used this story to claim that it had all the hallmarks of an Antifa provocation. And even though the tweet was deleted that he um, was sharing, this tweet is still up. So that hour later, Fox wrote a story based on Paul Gosser's tweet um, claiming that the riot had the hallmarks of an Antifa provocation. This disinformation, though, has persisted for quite some time. So this is a, a recent poll in Reuters uh, that took place in June of 2022, so not that long ago. 55% of Americans who identify as Republicans still believe that the riot was led by violent left-wing protesters, or Antifa. 58% um, of Americans who identify as Republicans believed that most of the protesters there were peaceful and law-abiding. Even though four people died on the day of the attack, at least 140 police officers were assaulted. And one police officer lost his life. If you go back to search, though, and you just look, Washington Times Antifa evidence, this same article is the top return. <clears throat> and the Antifa is highlighted because that's how search engines work, right? They're, they're highlighting your keyword. So if someone is, does their due diligence, right, and clicks on the link, and reads the story, they'll see a small disclaimer at the end that says, actually, this wasn't Antifa. But we know from our research that people just don't do that, right? They don't even leave the website. Um, but a lot of my research shows that they don't even leave the homepage. That you can just, and Google doesn't want you to. Right? They are increasingly reordering information in the hopes that they can answer their questions directly. I'll show you one more example of this and we can, actually, I feel like we're ending at 12.50, so I'm just gonna, I'll just wrap up quickly. Um, but I refer to this participatory process as the IKEA effect of misinformation. So while business scholars have found that people who put together furniture themselves value it more than a similar process, a similar piece of furniture, um, propagandists and conspiracy theorists are utilizing the same tactics, right? They're providing this like, tangible do-it-yourself quality to finding the information on your own, and they actually encourage in their podcasts not to trust them, but to do the research yourself, knowing full well um, how search works and that their returns will be, will be the most um, returned. So I have some other slides, but we can get into them in Q&A if you want. Um, I'll just go to the thing. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I talked for so long. No, it's great. Thank you, Jessica. Um, so while, while you were talking, Nick did a couple of searches in ChatGPT. Oh, excellent. <laughs> what were they saying? And, like, what color is the sky? How to, how to stop uh, election fraud? He solved it all already. So. <laughs> yeah. What does ChatGPT say about the color of the sky? Well, uh, it says it's often blue, but at night it's black. Uh, sometimes, you know, or uh, sunset. It can yeah, be colors. Various, various things. Um, yeah. So, so my question is, like, 
and, and yesterday I, I was in the, the Bing chat GPT search beta thing, which I found to be pretty terrible. Um, but you know, it seems like we're moving in a direction of like an answer actually coming yeah. up in Google or Bing or whatever it is, as opposed to like the top three or five websites. Yeah. Do you see that as like, are things gonna get better or worse as a result of that? Now, <laughs> Nick's answer like did show like the sky can be different colors. Yeah. You might, you might think about that, but that's a good thing. But, but yeah. is, is that single answer gonna sort of like, where do you see that going? I, I mean, one thing I will mention is if you say, like I, actually, I revised the, that question about okay. like, how do you increase ballot security? I changed it to, how do you prevent an election from being stolen in the United States, right? Ask that to, uh, to ChatGPT. And so it enumerates a list of seven, you know, seven ways and expresses like it is necessary in order to prevent an election from being stolen, that cybersecurity means, and uh, physical security means, and so forth, you know, be employed, and so forth. So it's, uh, it's sort of going along with the, with the premise in a certain way. It's not, it's not saying that there's, there, there's nothing that says there's a risk of an election being stolen. But, you know, that's the result. Yeah, I know. So I, I published, um, I, I have a piece in Wired that Google really hated where I was basically like, Google's ruining democracy, because I think they're actually already <clears throat> trying to answer our questions for us. Um, and they do it wrong sometimes. And when it's wrong, it's a really big problem, right? So they had the wrong date for um, a, a primary, right? Which they're like, well, no one was running against Trump. You know, it's not that big of a deal. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> okay, <laughs> kind of was, was like wrong though, right? Um, so like, I mean, I agree. Like, that's true. No one, no one was showing up for that one because he was running on. I mean, what's the word? Unopposed. Unopposed. Thank you. He was running unopposed, but it, it's still as concerning when um, information is inaccurate. I think also like when you query abortion near me, um, non-abortion centers uh, show up. Now they are like trying to label it, but I don't think the labels necessarily are effective and they can actually cause more problems. My worry even is with something like ChatGPT, they aren't even telling you what their source is. So even though Google's answering the question for you, you still can find out more and click where it's showing you. Um, but, but ChatGPT, and I've actually had a lot of, like, I love playing with ChatGPT on, like, conspiracy theories. And I'll be like, tell me, and, like, tell me a story about um, UFOs. And, and they're like, oh, well, that's not true. And I'm like, well, what about this time? And I'll show them this, like, case. And they're like, oh, well, there was this one time, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh, can you show me a source for that? And they're like, actually, I just made that up. And I'm like, what? you know, like, it's crazy. So, I mean, it's really like, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, it's a very exciting time to study search because it's totally changing. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if that helped to answer the question at all. But, like, I, I'm excited to see what happens, but I don't know. Yeah. Oh, go. Uh, do you, do you want to? Um, thank you so much for your talk. I'm wondering, um, perhaps, I think a little bit more about the deep story aspect of it. I should preface this by saying I'm a full believer in, in the critique of ideology <laughs> as an important. But I, but I, I also ha had increasingly the sense as you went on uh, explaining this process that on some level, walking it through to, to this logical end, does it, and I, and I also believe the content matters in shaping the political imaginaries and whatnot. But I, I guess the question is, if it's not this disinformation or misinformation, can we say, well, if we had the right information, if, then what? Would that change, right? Is it, a, is it an issue, of, and how do you see that? Because mm -hmm. I, I struggle with this question too. Well, if only they knew, you know, they would vote. <laughs> they wouldn't vote against their interests, right? So this question of, well, what happens after the critical uh, yeah, that's yeah, such a great question. <clears throat> I joke, this is why you never invite a sociologist to the party, because we're like, here's how it's broken, 
no idea how to fix it. Um, so I don't 100% feel like I can answer your question. But <clears throat> it, I'll see if I can. In some ways, I think this is why sometimes the fact-checking model isn't super useful mm -hmm. because I don't really think they care. It, it's like, it's less about like truth. I don't think it's about truth in the same way. Um, I do think though, unearthing the like recycled nature of a lot of this, quite frankly, racism is useful. Even if it doesn't change their minds, because I think this like recycled idea that somehow this is like fresh and new, by showing comparisons and being like, oh no, this is the same language you used against Martin Luther King uh, before. Kind of showing that underbelly and, and demonstrating how unoriginal it is. I don't know if it'll change anyone's mind, but I do think it's important to recognize like it's pretty predictable and like the story isn't all that different. Um, and so if we stop thinking about it as like a whack-a-mole and instead being like, okay, what are the central stories that they're gonna try to push? I think it kind of reframes our, our way of thinking about it. Does that, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I, I mean, if anything, I would say it also give us better tools to counter, yeah. uh, <laughs> no, to design better communication strategies for once. Um, uh, but, but I also wonder what the connection is with the deep stories. Because, I mean, that, that's where exactly where yeah. you started, that all of these <coughs> things resonate and are powerful precisely because they're connected to a, to a deep story yeah, that, that may or may not be connected or impacted in the same way with the yeah. system of, of information and participatory search and, and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm wondering, the world, and I also don't know the answer, no, no. what happens to the deep stories in the meantime. Yeah, so I would say, I think our strategy, or the strategy, is less about like combating theirs and more about understanding the other deep stories. So like, Justin and I were talking about this even class. There, there was, you know, Frank Lunds did a lot of work talking and engaging with young voters and old voters and, and figuring out what are their deep stories and I don't think we've done that same work on the left. I don't think we know what the deep story is of young voters, and that's a huge missed opportunity. I think also, I did a, <coughs> I worked with a, a computer programmer, and he was able to scrape the metadata from YouTube and show how progressive YouTubers and conservative YouTubers tag their own content, and progressive YouTubers don't understand tagging, right? Like they're tagging it with like the literal words of like things in their stuff, but there's no crafty language. Like the amount of unique words and phrases that conservative YouTubers are using, just vastly outnumbered, but then they were also tagging their content. Like the number one tagger of the phrase feminism was I, I think Jordan Peterson, right? So. That's not the kind of feminism I probably agree with. Uh, and, and yet, like, so I think there's strategies and ways for people trying to use the IKEA effect um, for their stories. And I think that's where more energy could be spent. So is there time know. for another quick, I don't know. Yeah, okay. one more. Um, well, so I, I, I feel like it dovetails here. Um, maybe this is more near chapter three. But one of the things I'm convinced is that we need to better understand Christian evangelical traditions, methods, meaning, practices, mm -hmm. and this stuff. And it seemed like maybe your chapter three gets at that a little bit. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you can, can you give a highlight? Yeah. <laughs> so I talk a lot about this, like the role of scriptural inference. So, <clears throat> you know, the Protestant Reformation and like much of Protestantism within the United States is really bound to this like individualist interpretation of text. And so in the Bible studies, you know, we would go through two or three lines of text 
and go through them very deeply and talk about them. But in one Bible study that I was in, um, the, author, the, the pastor was like, great. Now we're going to talk about the new tax reform bill. And then he like opened this copy of the tax reform bill. And he read, I, I, I'm, like he read from this sentence, and he's like, now let us think about how these acts provisions are going to impact a local business owner or a farmer different than a corporation. And we were like talking about this in Bible study. He's like, now when you get home, you need to go and read this text yourself. And like legislative text is horrible. Like no one reads it. Not even the legislators read it. They have their aides read it, right? But also that's why so many of them, um, that you'll see this uh, in rebuttals to legislation where they'll be like, well, you didn't even read it. I read it. And so that like deep engagement in the like reading of it, and Crystal talks about this a lot in her work, um, is like this. So I talk about like how scripture is transferable and I talk about like the wall of separation in my book as well. Like when you think of wall of separation, what do you think? Separation of church and state, right? Um, but they use a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptists and they read that letter and in that letter Thomas Jefferson states we need to build a wall of separation to protect the church from the government not the other way around and that government leaders should be like deeply involved in their Christian teachings yeah where does a pastor get the idea like we're going to look at this tax reform law in other words is how, how grassroots is that versus the National Association of Evangelicals that's like, here's a good thing to talk about in Bible studies. Is it yeah. top down? Is it bottom up? Is it somewhere in between? God, that's a great question. I didn't ask him that question, so I don't know. But his felt very organic. Like, he had his piece of paper in his pocket, just yeah. unfolded it. That was the only time we, he had done that kind of transition. Well, that was 2017? This was 2017. Well, if you, if you cannot wait, you should go get Propaganda's Playbook and read it. But if you cannot wait, there's also a Data and Society report, which is oh, yeah. called... Uh, Searching for Alternative Facts. Searching for Alternative Facts, yeah. which is free to download, which is yeah. essentially kind of chapter yeah. three. Chapter so that's a lot of chapter three. You could read that today. Yeah. <laughs> for free. On Amazon yeah. to send you. Yeah. Um, or your local bookstore. But let's yeah. uh, thank, thank, thank you. Thank you.